Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And this is our final episode of Season 1, Bachtoberfest. Yeah. Don't worry, we're coming back for Season 2 next year. Yep, in January. But for now, we decided we're just going to have fun with this last episode. Christian, what all are we going to do? First, uh, Alex and I are going to talk real briefly about the coffee cantata. You see in our thumbnail image that Sidney Lacombe drew for us, our wonderful image that has me and you and Bach between us having a conversation, and we're drinking coffee. Bach wrote a coffee cantata. It's like a mini operetta thing, a secular cantata, and it's delightful and silly. And I want to listen to some of it today. The other stuff we're going to do is frequently ask questions for Moments of Bach or questions submitted by our listeners for this episode. Yeah. We asked you, what do you want to know about the podcast, about us? What do you want to know about what's coming up next? What do you want to see happen? Also, over the course of this first season, we've been asking for suggestions, and we have some of those pending still, and we can bring some of those up. And then we've got a blooper reel, of course, as promised. Yeah. But since this Oktoberfest, it's time for fun beverages. So we have the coffee cantata, but we also have the German beer. So we decided that it would be a good idea to try right now a, an actual imported German beer, a Spaten Optimator, which is what kind of brew? What kind of brew is that, Christian? Well, it's a Doppelbach, which is a type of Bach. That is B-O-C-K. So <laughs> yeah. what better beer to have on a moment of Bach than a Bach? That's right. A German Bach. A German Bach, I should say. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Cheers. You know what? That's really nice. It's really heavy and rich. That's one of my favorite Just beers. Just like Bach. Yes, it is. Like, you know, you listen to something and you're like, whoa, that's deep. And full of flavor? I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know. I think if you're going to make a comparison, Bach could be like uh, this beer. Yeah. I think that's a good, as good as any. So coffee cantata is silly. And we thought about, like, let's have coffee with the coffee cantata. But we also wanted to have beer. And it's also late night right now. And just, that doesn't seem like a good idea to just do both of those. No. So, <laughs> we're going to stick with the beer. No, but that is an interesting point because the coffee cantata was written in a time when coffee was relatively new. This funny recitative here. The two characters in this cantata are a girl who has become addicted to this newfangled fad, which is coffee drinking, and her father, who is fed up with all of this and thinks that his daughter has gone down the path of wild immorality. In this section of the coffee cantata, he says, You bad child, wild girl, if I could only have my way to get rid of coffee. Böses kind, du 
mir den Kaffee weg. And then she says, Oh, Father, don't be so hard on me. If three times a day I can't drink my little cup of coffee, then I would become so upset, I would be like a dried up piece of roast goat. I think sometimes these words are just in there because they sound amazingly silly in German, like even to German speakers. Yeah. It's great. Piece of roast goat. I remember reading a quote somewhere. I was looking for Bach quotes that he said, like J.S. Bach. Just don't trust the internet on your first Google search, everybody. Because like one time I remember thinking for years that Bach said this as a thing that he said. Like without my three cups of coffee a day, I'm like a dried up goat. Really? Yeah. And I thought oh, for... I, I didn't know that's that. just because I searched Google like Bach quotes. Yeah. You know? and, but what the result gave me was a lyric from the libretto of the coffee cantata. Although I think he did drink coffee, but that's not the point. <laughs> But it is interesting to see what people throughout history used that particular drug, so to speak. Then she goes on with an aria about basically an ode to coffee and how wonderful and sweet it tastes. And that it's more lovely than a thousand kisses. And it goes on and on. of this Bachtoberfest is to sort of see what what people want to talk about. So let's get into some of these questions. Yeah. Here's a question we've got from multiple listeners. What is the intro-outro music? Alex, can you answer? I can. It is an aria from the St. Matthew Passion. Every so often we mention this, but not enough. Um, not enough for you to remember it, probably. And that is, it's the aria Mache dich mein Herz rein which is a bass aria from near the end of the St. Matthew Passion. And Christian, when you and I had the idea for the podcast and started putting together ideas about how it was going to be presented, we actually settled on the Vakit Auf cantata opening thing for like a second. And we were both like, let's do that little instrumental opening, which we love and which... I talked about in episode three, but then we, I don't remember why, but we, we jumped back to the Machedich, which we just think is so beautiful. Um, the instrumental obligato introduction of that is so beautiful. I just, there's something about that. Maybe it's where it hits in that, in that huge work, St. Matthew Passion, you get near the end. We've just like gone through that whole thing. And at the point where Jesus is getting buried, 
and the, then this singer sings like this word, these beautiful words of like, make my heart clean, make my heart pure, so I can bury Jesus in my heart, basically. It's, it be, it's just very personal and like, it's so tender. And the music is so complex, but but also just so pure. I, there's something so special about it. There's, it kind of sounds a little bit more modern than Bach. He does some interesting things. There's some really interesting things with the timing. Yeah. But it ultimately also has this like folk flavor. Yeah. And it is sort of a lilty Sicilian dance. And it's so sweet and beautiful. It does have a little bit of a turmoil in the middle when the soloist declares to the world to get out and let in Jesus. But, but it's mostly just make my heart, prepare my heart for Jesus to come in. And this is like a really sad part of the story too, yeah. in the middle of the St. Matthew Passion where Jesus has died. And the actual German words being sung are a little intense. It's like, make my heart ready for Jesus so that he can be buried there. Right. So it's like, why would your heart be a tomb for Jesus unless it, unless you needed him that badly that, that you needed him in there. I mean, we know that biblically speaking, that story is incomplete because there's the resurrection that happens after that. But to say, like, let Jesus be buried into my heart, it's very evocative. Yeah. I, I love that so much that I have a lot more to say about it, but I'm going to save it because I think we got to do an episode on it because it's, we worth, definitely it's worth it to do that. We'll definitely do a whole episode on it. Probably be a guest episode and oh, maybe next year. Yeah. So one of the people that asked that particular question was Mark. Uh, and then and then this is a thing that we just kind of answered because another listener, Parivwat, asked, are you ever going to do an episode on it, not just the intro? So the answer is, of course, yeah. yes, definitely. We didn't get to it this first season, not for any particular reason, and we're not trying to make you all wait, but yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> we will. We promise. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where it just feels like it feels like we can't do it, otherwise the podcast is over. You know, jump the shark. It's like Doughboys with the McDonald's. They, they haven't reviewed McDonald's yet. Did you notice that? They're waiting until they're I think that might be the last That's episode. crazy. Yeah. They must have that. A chain, a, a chain restaurant podcast. You know they're just being silly. They're like, we're not going to do just their thing yeah. to hold off on McDonald's. Next question. How do you pronounce your last name? I love this question because it's such a good question because I always tell people, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not, you don't have a chance. Like, how would you know? <laughs> Which is, is silly, but like, the way they were pronouncing it is the Americanized version of a French name. And the answer is that we are pronouncing it Gibert. Which we do say. I guess we, I guess we do say that. Right? <laughs> but but also our our heritage is mostly German, so it's kinda of complicated. It's we probably French. We think the name is French and it's yeah. Gibert. It's probably missing an acute accent on the first E. Yeah, but there's another theory that I have. Okay. <laughs> Which is that it's G-U-E. It's, it used to be an umlaut. And it's just German. Like Gebert. just Gebert. Yeah. Could be. It, it does It does look an awful lot like the word Gebert, which means to be born. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I, le- I learned how to sing Silent Night in German, Stille Nacht. And I was like, whoa. At the end of it there, it says our last name. Yeah. No, Gebert is uh, always mispronounced. That's just fine. We live with that, you know. But... um. The U-E in there 
yeah, a lot of times German names when they get Americanized or Anglicized, I guess is another way of putting it, is that E will go away. Or the, the umlaut, no, not the E won't go away. The E will get added after the vowel. And then the umlaut on the vowel goes away. Mm-hmm. I tried to look this up one time, like an ancestry site. And apparently the couple of hundred or thousand, less than a thousand Gieberts that there are in the United States have names derived from Gilbert, which is French as well. <laughs> but then there's also Gibert of Nogent, which <laughs> is a historical theologian figure, like a medieval guy. And it's G-U-I-B-E-R-T. I found this the other day. Did uh, you know about this? So No. So maybe that's what it is. Who knows? Next question. Why is everything you play one half step lower or higher than the notes you are talking about? That's a great question, Christian, and I will attempt to answer it. Not, a, not an expert on Baroque tuning, but the reason is because the tuning was different back then. So if we want to be accurate, we need to pitch things down a little bit. And from my understanding of it, the pitch is somewhere around a half step lower than what we have now. And a lot of times people will just make it pretty much exactly a half step lower so that just in case you have an instrument that's very, very hard to tune, you can literally just play it a half step lower. But looking at these musicians playing their instruments, it seems to me like they're just playing it. Well, I have to, I don't think I've really paid super close attention, but definitely for the string instruments. Oh yeah. They're playing it as it was written. Yeah. They're tuning it. They're, they're trying, the Netherlands Bach Society is making an attempt to, a historically informed attempt to tune things and play things like they would have been played. And we shouldn't take for granted that instruments were a lot different then than they are now. And instruments had have been modernized a lot since then. Even the pitch level that everyone played at was a little different and we think lower, right? And I mean, like, even the tuning of... We talked a little bit about this way back in episode six, it was, when we talked about the well-tempered clavier and how tempering or like tuning a certain way for a keyboard instrument was was starting to change, was starting to evolve. But even that is something we don't know a lot about. I mean, we're not really sure what Bach meant by that exactly. I mean, there are all these different tuning systems that, that sort of tried to fix the problem of of um, these weird intervals that you'd get when you played in keys that were outside the normal keys. So there's all kinds of little tricks to that. And that's why the music scholarship of like classical music is just so fascinating to delve into because there's so much detail. And since we're talking about a composer who worked with organs a lot, that's even another can of worms to open because you go to a different cathedral or, or hall with an organ in it and it's going to be different. And for anyone who's had to play a musical instrument where you maybe went on a tour or something to different organs and played with an organ, maybe like a trumpet player or an orchestra going around with an organ. Alex, you and I have been part of groups like this before where mm-hmm. we've gone around and we've the concert has been with an organist, but we've toured different locations. The band had to tune a little differently at each location because because of each organ. Well, anyway, long story short is that, like Alex said, a lot of the works, especially the big orchestral stuff, works out to sound about a half step lower than what it looks like. So like something something in A minor is going to, if you had to sit down and play it on the piano to match the Netherlands Box Society recording, you're going to be playing it in G sharp minor. Mm. And then occasionally 
it's a little different or more like modern pitch depending on the solo instrument there we was could play one. it in a flat minor instead you could that's like but then that's I mean, like if you're reading the sheet music maybe that was already printed that way that'd if be easier the bottom of a coal mine and somebody drops oh boy. a piano no. <laughs> <laughs> all right seriously though like that joke is <laughs> it makes me cringe because i'm like no it has to be g sharp minor that's easier yeah right and then, and then i've killed the joke and if you don't if you didn't notice this that's okay i mean i'm not sure who's going to notice this but if you have perfect pitch or something then you might, you might have been going crazy this whole year why are they playing things different but it's just the nature of trying to accurately imitate old music yep uh we had a listener ask if we were going to someday do a show featuring sheep may safely graze which this was actually our aunt linda who asked this question did you know that oh I didn't write, no I didn't. I didn't write that down here but yeah it was oh that's right she says that was my that was my mother's wedding march and has a special meaning for me so our grandma yeah right and the answer is we do want to do that but it just hasn't been released by netherlands box society yet so we wouldn't be able to use the recording but that's such a lovely one and that is a kind of like the coffee cantata that's an example of a secular cantata but it's not silly like the coffee cantata mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's beautiful christian who writes the episodes ah well we don't write a complete script for every episode but we both before starting the podcast we both wrote out the scripted part of each episode just the beginning and end basically the beginning and end and then alex we take turns picking the topic and hosting the episode so some of you have caught on to this that we alternate pretty much week by week and what we do yeah. is the co-host says welcome to a moment of bach where we blah 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 we are your hosts and then today's moment is this and that and then the host goes on takes over and starts the episode and then we have some back and forth then the co-host at the very end says and now here is this part of this thing bwv this thing And then we play it, and then the co-host signs us off. And now you know how we do it, so now you, listener, can take one of our spots if we're sick. I'm going to be sick in January. Somebody needs to fill in for me. Let me know. How did you know that that already? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then the host says, until next time, enjoy those moments. And Alex and I have a Google document where we routinely try really hard to trip each other up by, during the podcast, changing small words in this script yeah yeah and you never hear that because we edit those things out but yeah pretty crucially it's not it's just one of us doing the the work as far as like getting ready for the episode and figuring out what bullet points we're going to talk about or sometimes writing out some script but i mean honestly we usually don't but we just get we prepare but but we don't write out every word of what we're going to talk about for the piece for that that day typically um, but and then oh speaking of the written out stuff the stuff that we did come up with like the the beginning and end stuff I have to give credit to my wife Heather who came up with the tagline Enjoy or at least moments, yeah. yeah at least she refined it I think we had come up with something kind of like it and she mm-hmm. suggested it if I remember correctly it's been a while now but yeah we were yep. trying to come up and that was like we were recording our first episode and we had everything ready and then we we're like wait we need a little tag at the end yep <laughs> we didn't have it so we had to come up with something right right then on the spot. And then whose ever turn it was to host, 
then edits the episode, and that's how we switch off. That's right. I hear a lot of podcasts where like there'll be a few hosts or whatever, and one person's always doing the editing because that might be their special gift, and maybe the other people aren't as good at that. But it always feels like wow, that seems like a lot of work for that person. <laughs> I'm glad we're splitting it pretty evenly. Yeah, it's the only way. <laughs> yeah. So Christian, what does BWV mean, and why do we say it all the time? BWB number, 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 number. Yes, this was a question that we got from Will. And the answer is, it stands for Bach Werke Verzeichnis, which means Bach works, the works of Bach directory or catalog, the Bach work catalog. It was instituted way, way after his death, more closer to the present day. It's an attempt by Bach scholars to try to be very helpful in cataloging and separating out and categorizing all of Bach's works. It's a huge project because he wrote so much music. And so you need something like this. Yeah. And that's what it means. And another thing from Will. Alex, we got recently just the nicest email from from Will, who loves the podcast and had a lot of interesting things to say. And he's also a visual artist and was painting and showed us a painting that he was working on before listening to the podcast and then after or, or maybe uh, he was even listening as he painted this same painting and he mm-hmm. showed us the progress which was really really neat yeah he mentions that he would like to do he would like us to discuss at some point um well he actually didn't say this but we should discuss this as one of our uh, things next year is a moment that he picked from the Mass in B minor. The aria Quisedes with that alto solo. Absolutely stunning part of the of the Mass in B minor that we'll definitely get to. And he's, he's bringing up the color of the instrument and the alto and everything all together. It's just... Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the aria from episode 11 that we talked about. Second movement of the Bleib bei uns cantata, which I talked about that. That was also an alto soloist and like a mid-range oboe type instrument, right? Mm-hmm. this is a similar thing when this is this one is an oboe de more which christian you talked about oboe de more on episode oh i'll think of it oh there's so many episodes now must have been 10 right oboe de more. yes because of yes because that's where yeah yeah and so this just like such a like a throaty like a throaty almost like sensual instrument mm-hmm. sounding instrument in the range that it's in it's it's really it's really something yeah. kind of like an English the modern English horn is the analog yeah and then we have a request from Bill talking about how great it would be if we had a knowledgeable flutist talking about and demonstrating how Johann Sebastian used various flutes in particular ways this would be wonderful we have to do that if if anyone out there is a baroque flutist we want you on this podcast <laughs> and for that matter we are definitely taking guests for for the next season there's no audition process we just want you to be excited about a 
a certain moment of Bach that you picked. That's right. And yeah. our, our first guest was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not a musician. That was Eric Claussen, our brother-in-law. He's a Lutheran pastor. You don't have to be a musician to guest yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. There's if you, plenty to talk about. You just have to be excited about about uh, something by Bach. Yeah. And that being said, we do want musicians to guest on this podcast. And uh, we have some really exciting ideas and some people confirmed for next year. And I, won't, I don't want to give it away, but let me just say guitar. I'll just say that. <laughs> anyway, you might be thinking, did Bach write work, any works for the guitar? Well, I'm not going to say anything else. I'll just let that sit. Mm. But it's something like that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Will, uh, listener Will, for that really nice email. And also, it's been totally workable with us during the pandemic is to is to do some of these things over the internet. Actually, for a while, Alex, I mean, this is kind of maybe obvious to the listeners who'd understand what timeline we started. We started in January of 2021. Right. But there were several episodes where we did everything remotely with each other as well. Right. We right. There were some, had to. some points where, where we are in the world. It was like super lockdown time for a while there. And we just were, it just made the most sense to do that. Yeah. And, but it totally works. I mean, we just had the two mics and then zoom and then lining it all up is was pretty easy so i mean yeah i think a lot of podcasts went just went straight into that as soon as the pandemic hit and it's the kind of thing that is not super affected poor you know too much by that no i mean it's nice to be in a room with someone and see people's facial expressions and everything but really it worked just fine for what it was yeah so we have some instagram questions here that came in uh we have someone with a handle of cat keys 316 who asks which classical composers were clearly inspired by Bach in their own work? This is a great question. That is a great question. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the obvious answers first. Well, I'm, I mean the the most obvious answer is, is everybody that knew about Bach after Bach. Yeah, right? but which wasn't everyone right away. Right, because he wasn't actually continent famous right away, um, as not as much as you'd hope, but. Some of my most obvious answers would be Mozart, yeah, who discovered the music of J.S. Bach, probably met one of his sons, but upon learning about the music of, of the father, J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian, Mozart really got into fugues after that because that was an old mm. style of thing that Bach excelled at so much or really perfected. And Mozart, being um, an immensely gifted young composer, took to this right away and because of that, we have some great stuff, especially in the later Mozart, like, for instance, parts of Mozart's Requiem, which are very well-constructed fugues. Yeah. They're not sloppy at all. They're really tight, and they're very Bach-like in their, in their construction. Beethoven was also a huge lover of, of Bach. There's a famous quote by Beethoven that said, not that said, like, shouldn't be called Bach, he should be called Ocean. You know, because Bach means brook in German. So yeah. if he's saying this in German, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that being said, Beethoven's counterpoint uh, isn't exactly to the to the level of Mozart or Bach. I would say I'm not trying to throw shade at Beethoven at this moment. <laughs> he's, <laughs> but you are, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Beethoven surely was one of the greats. But um, the counterpoint is a little just like whatever. Just whatever worked, whatever needed to, to happen at the whatever particular time. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Alex, really comes to mind for me is Mendelssohn. Yeah. 
and Brahms, but more probably more so Mendelssohn. Brahms is good is a good one, and Brahms was quoted as loving Bach. Yeah, and Brahms was such a traditional type of composer for his time. That's a, yeah. Those are those are the two big eighteen hundreds answers: Brahms and Mendelssohn. And for Mendelssohn, it's really actually thanks to him that a lot of people started to learn about Bach in his day, because he was sort of a Bach revivalist. Right. He rediscovered that stuff, the passions. I mean, if it wasn't for Mendelssohn, who knows how long later, how much delayed it would have been before people started to discover Bach. Right. Then if you're going a little a little closer to, to now, like electronic music and 20, later 20th century stuff, um, there's Wendy Carlos with the switched on Bach stuff, which yep. is very interesting synthesizer type stuff. Um, a lot of, a lot of, I think just a lot of, electronic music i don't know i mean like i'm kind of going off the deep end here but it's not all just classical stuff it's just bach kind of appeals to i think the type of person who doesn't like classical music sometimes bach just appeals to that person because it's not it doesn't sound like erudite as much as as some of the romantic stuff does at least not to my ears maybe erudite's the wrong word it doesn't sound pretentious maybe is the word like it sounds it's not it's way more it's way more grounded um, than some of the, especially the late romantic stuff that's kind of all over the place. Yeah. Some of that late romantic music is very, very self-important. Yeah. The thing with Bach is that, is that it's never, never ego driven. Yeah. You could, it just isn't, he just didn't write music trying to impress or, well, I mean, like literally that was sometimes the goal of applying for a job or something, but the music itself does not patronize you, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we had a question from Miss Rebecca Lynn on Instagram. Have either of you done any work in arranging box music, especially for handbells? Um, yeah, both of us have done conducting and arranging and stuff for, for handbells and currently do actively. Um, I have done a little for bells with Bach. Um, certainly conducted a lot of pieces that are transcriptions that I haven't, that I didn't do that someone else did for bells. And I did a yeah I did a transcription of the crucifixus movement from the mass in B minor for handbells and hand chimes which came off very nicely but I don't have a recording of that um, and like I mentioned once on a previous episode I did a little rearrangement of Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring with that was episode nineteen we talked about this with God's Own Child chorale tune instead of the typical one that Bach uses and a couple other random things here and there I think but. Yeah, Bach lends itself to, like we talked about um, in a bunch of previous episodes, Bach lends, music lends itself to being transcribed for other instrumentation a lot of the times. So Right, and because it's old enough, it's in the public domain to use the source material. Yeah, I've I've done, done a couple of other like orchestration type things that are pretty modest, I think. Not much, but Christian, you've done some. Yeah, right. I've certainly done uh, a few transcriptions. Whenever we say the word transcription, listener, if you don't know what we're talking about, that'd be like saying the exact piece of music just arranged for the other instrument. So like handbells, a handbell ensemble playing a transcription of the crucifixus from the Mass in B minor. It's just taking those instrument parts, putting them on another instrument. Yeah. It does require a lot of technical arranging skills, but it doesn't require you to actually compose any music. Whereas when we say right. arrangements, that could mean 
your own creative arrangement of something. Yeah, that's a lot more open-ended term. Could could involve composition. And for that, I have done a setting of, for, it was for a Christmas carol festival, a setting of box harmonization of Break Forth, O Beauteous Heavenly Light. That's our English, that is our English title for the hymn tune. Um, but it comes from one of, just one of Bach's hundreds of hymn harmonizations. I used his harmonization, but then I sort of merged it with my own introduction, so that it switched off between the Bach phrases and then something else. But it's also worth worth pointing out that Bach himself was the truly the most master arranger of all time. I mean, think about mm. all the chorale harmonizations yeah. for all the cantatas. And now there's there's hundreds. You can find them all compiled into one book. We've talked about this before. And these were tunes that existed already. He didn't write the melodies of all of those things, but right. he did arrange them and harmonize them. So he, he arranged them. Of course, he also wrote tons and tons of completely original music too. Yeah, but, and that's probably why these cantatas are just like pinnacles of just music artistry because they combine his excellence at arranging known hymn tunes a lot of times it was something known some of those cantatas and with original stuff like especially the chorale cantatas that i'm thinking of right now the cycle of cantatas um but anyway i yeah to, to the question about arranging i mean like actually one of my favorite things i've ever done and i've done a few of these is like arrangements of just other stuff like hymn things but for the ensemble for a Bach cantata concert. So we just last week interviewed Dr. Heidi, who um, for almost 30 years was music minister at St. John's in Orange, which is where I now am music minister. And so I now have the great joy and blessing of being able to conduct these concerts. And the next one's coming up in November, and November 14th. We're going to do the Vakatov cantata, which is one of my favorites. And I'm just so excited about that. So what I've done with these, and I've done these before, even when Bill was there, I have arranged just other music or other hymns or whatever, but with the particular instrumentation for the Bach Cantata concert that we have. did this arrangement just now I literally just finished it today I did this arrangement of uh, King's Weston hymn tune and I did it for like strings and obo two oboes and an English horn which is a weird instrumentation mm. but it's what the instrumentation is for the Vakadav cantata right so yeah. that's two what I did oboes and like tenor oboe basically which which and and like way back in episode four we talked about limitations sometimes are the best thing for creativity like that oh, yeah. was so cool because i was like hmm, i've definitely never written for like basically three oboes is what it feels like yeah and strings it's a weird and piano actually i added into that it's a weird instrumentation so that's a that's a totally interesting different angle alex on the question of arranging box music yeah. because in this case you're arranging box you're arranging for box orchestra 
yeah. other music. Which kind of feels like, in in its own humble way, I guess it's 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 nothing like what Bach had to do for for weeks and well, after weeks after weeks after weeks. But it is kind of fun to carry on that feeling of like, okay, well, this was his instrumentation that week, so it's going to be my instrumentation this week. It's pretty you cool know? to think like if this was what Bach used mm-hmm. and successfully used musically then that's kind of like a guarantee that it works it does <laughs> like, and i i even included a couple of little easter eggs in my arrangement christian i was going to show this to you i'll show it to you right after this um yeah little easter eggs that are like callbacks to the vacadal cantata because oh, this, cool. this hymn is going to happen after that like at the mm-hmm. end so yeah i'm excited about it if you can't tell yeah. <laughs> So our next question uh, comes from someone with the Instagram handle of M. Gibbs. 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 That's right. Uh-huh. Um, yep. So anyway, <laughs> for those of you who know us, you might have figured out that uh, my wife's name is Megan. So there you go. I don't see what that has to do with this at all. Right. <laughs> the question is, have you both always been equally interested in box music so oh, equally as in the two of us that's an interesting question it is actually well this question could be approached a lot of different ways but i'll say this from my own perspective i have always loved bach but i my obsession with bach has grown in the last few years even just the last couple of years which is crazy because i've loved bach since i started writing music in in high school and i was writing music influenced by Bach's contrapuntal style back then. But one thing I always know, and why we start this podcast really, is that you can continually over the course of your life be surprised by J.S. Bach. He's one of the only composers that's like this. There's mm-hmm. only a few, there's only a tiny percent of musicians I think ever who stru- who do this to me, who truly surprise me every new week or month. Bach is one of them. There are a couple of other people I can think of that come to mind that are like that. One of them is Ligeti, the Hungarian composer, yeah. always doing something different throughout his throughout his life and always surprises and never disappoints. Another figure like that who was always changing and surprising that I can think of, uh, Miles Davis. Hmm. Miles Davis was always on to the next thing. And Bach was always writing so, so much music and so many different, for so many different instrumentations. So... So my answer to this question, from my perspective, is that it it's constantly evolving. I only discovered the Gotteszeit cantata a few years ago because it's so unusual. And it's been my obsession for like three or four years. It's crazy to me to just simply think of the fact that I didn't even know about that cantata in 2015, even though I had tried to consume as much Bach as I could. Yeah, that would be like that would be like if you didn't had never heard of the Lord of the Rings or something, and then you read all of it. Well, this is what happened with, with Heather. She, in high school, she saw the movie, right? The first one, when it came out, and then um, immediately read all the books, like all three, just immediately. <laughs> and that's amazing. Like a world, a world where Bach doesn't exist or you don't really know about it or you haven't delved into the genius of it is really exciting in a way, right? Yeah. There's a lot of potential there, but that's what, but it's kind of goes to what you're saying, Christian, which is that because there's so much of it and because it constantly surprises you, that's what's great about it. You don't have these, you don't have a small, you don't have a small body of work here. 
Right. It's huge. Yeah. And just constantly, it's constantly surprising you. Right. We There's so many different reasons why we picked Bach as our focus for a podcast. It seems like the obvious choice, but it only is because he was the uh, best. <laughs> you know, like it's that <laughs> yeah. everything is, everything is of such a high quality that he wrote in his whole life. Never did mm-hmm. he write a, a lazy note, let's say. Yeah. He never wrote a lazy note. And speaking as an arranger slash engraver slash composer, there are so many tempting moments. Mm-hmm. Actually, I look to Bach. This seems a little silly, but it's totally true. I look to Bach for basically compositional fortitude whenever I get to that moment where I think I could just totally phone it in for the next 30 seconds of music here and I would finish this project, you know? Oh, that's a that's sometimes that's such a low-hanging fruit you're just like ah oh, i just want to finish this thing copy and paste something Ooh, control c control v. yeah but you know what and then i think if i did that it won't be as good as it could have been not, not as a perfectionist that would tear me up inside but then i also could think like bach wouldn't have settled here he mm-hmm. would have wrote it out to the end wrote it out to the end i guess right and in the music history as well as any any history of any art is full of those people who did the who made the lazy choices and that those kind of people don't really persevere you know or yeah. the, the memory of those people and their legacy doesn't persevere right because it's clear that they didn't put give their all to everything that they did i know we're taking forever to answer this question but one other side of this question is have we both always been equally interested well i know that we probably have because I do think I can think of a memory when Alex, you and I are both in high school and we were sort of fiddling around with this really basic MIDI program on the computer. And one of the things that we love to do was put in the Bach inventions on yeah. the piano and then assign them to wacky instruments like electric bass and guitar and add a drum part and just like make uh-huh. it do like a, we did like a ska version of one of them uh-huh. and like yeah. oh, stuff yeah. like that. That we absolutely loved. It was before we even... I'm convinced, Alex, that this is how we learned ear training. Because it was before we realized we could just look up online that someone had probably uploaded MIDI files for all this stuff already. But we yeah. didn't know that. So we just had to do it all by by hand and by ear. Well, yeah. And then maybe a little earlier than that when we got that Yamaha keyboard that helped a lot. Right. But also, I was just thinking about, like, when did we start loving Bach? Well... There's home video of us like as two year olds or something like that in front of the CD player, like clicking through the tracks of a CD that has Bach on it and talking to each other about which, you know, which tracks we liked the best or whatever and telling each other what we like. We like number four. We like number four. And then we'd skip to number four and then it'd be like, I don't know, partitas or something. I don't even remember what the CD was. There's something Bach. I'm pretty sure that, that that home video of us as babies or as little, really little kids skipping to like we like number four we like number four and then you go to it and i think it was the the chacon in in d the violin chacon in d minor mm. which as far as the attention span of a little kid is concerned you'd think that would be way too long but that was when we liked and we loved watching the cd player count yep the digital numbers so i guess it must have really made an impression on our young little little brains yeah we loved we loved counting and lists and things like both of us we're into that and Bach just 
it just totally works for that. I mean, like, I think I think we loved other classical music and other music of a bunch of different styles too. But I think, you know, we were always we were counters. We were counting everything. But you know, equally interested in Bach, I got to say no. I got to say Christian. You kind of were more interested in Bach than me for like a good long time. And when you suggested the podcast, I was in right away, and I was like, "This is great." But oh. you you were the driving force to get it started at the the top of it. Hmm. So I think it took me, it took me like a little bit longer to like really dive in as much as, as you, but I mean, pretty quickly I got right. I got right into the, I mean, you know, just like you have always loved Bach. It's hard to even say that, but I just, I, I can admit, I can definitely admit like feeling maybe like eh, five years ago or so, let's say way before the podcast, but like feeling like you definitely like felt stronger about Bach than I did, which I don't know. I think I've come around. <laughs> yeah, and yet I knew that I, that you'd be on board if I proposed the idea. Oh, yeah. It's just such a endless well of things to explore. So, yeah. It was almost like just maybe it was almost just daunting to me, just like the it idea is actually, of yeah. the, the idea. I mean, even before the podcast, like just the idea of Bach himself, just like I I know I've always loved this, um, but there's so much there's so much there that I don't even know that it just felt it felt a little overwhelming which is a silly thing to think about about experiencing art you should think that about like having to do work you have to do for your job or something <laughs> not you know but but that's kind of how I felt about it and then of course when you dig in it becomes this like this spring that just does not does not stop springing up with all this beautiful music i mean it's like you don't have to you don't have to worry about it you put it you put in the effort to listen and it 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 rewards it you. always always rewards you and speaking as someone who took doctoral exams and had to go to school especially over the last from 2016 to early 2020 when i was in doctoral school i was plagued with this thought a lot this debilitating thought which is when am i actually going to get around to learning like everything there is to know about the entire western classical music canon because some of these professors i see not so much the young people that were my peers but especially the professors are just like encyclo- mental encyclopedias of yeah. of all of the entire works of Beethoven and and everybody around that time and Mozart and Bach and everything. And the fact is as we do this podcast I realize how much I don't know, but you know they call that's like the Dunning-Kruger effect where where once you realize how much there is to know, you can actually take a little bit of comfort in knowing that it's okay to not know all that stuff. Plus we have access to it anyway. We're never going to run out of things to listen to. And Bach is is deep. So yeah. it's fine. It just shouldn't be a problem. We shouldn't. I shouldn't obsess over it. <laughs> one of my favorite memes ever, we should link to it, is the one where it's like the iceberg, where it's like going deeper down oh, yeah. into the iceberg about, the, about music. Is there a Bach iceberg? I bet there is. Well, it's like... I mean, there's an iceberg for everything, isn't there, by this point? If you, like, for every... What? You can find an iceberg of any media by now you mean that the someone has made. Yeah, the oh, meme. Okay. The meme. Like, do they name the icebergs? No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so like I'm talking about the yeah, it's like it's like music. And so at the top it was like the simple, simpler types of music. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then like go down down a little bit, you get to the classical composers. And even Bach is like is there, like along with like Mozart and like Brahms or whatever. Then it goes down, and then it goes into the weirder twentieth century things like 
Xenakis and like Laity, like you were talking about. Then you go down deeper, and it's like listening to the waveforms of the of the uh, of like random radio radio waves or whatever. <laughs> and then it's like all this weird stuff that you're doing, and then in the very bottom, it just says Bach. <laughs> yeah still transcendent even (laughs) even in that format okay the next question how are you influenced by bach in your own compositions well we we did kind of go over some of this but did kind of for me aside from the practical aspect of like him that is bach being like my spiritual mentor like how i should be as a music worker aside from that musically speaking it's counterpoint i study bach Musically speaking, I always look, I'm always trying to figure out more about how to write voices against other parts, parts against parts, counterpoint, how things weave beautifully together and work vertically and horizontally. Counterpoint is important uh, to me, even though it is a such an old style, now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old in Western music. I think it has a really interesting place in current current music of whatever genre if you do it really nicely and with really good technique there's a lot of bad counterpoint out there so i think counterpoint is what it is for me and i sneak i sneak bach style counterpoint into whatever i can anytime i get a job to write something i agree when you when i'm when i'm listening to a new piece that i don't know by bach that's something that i that's unfamiliar that is one thing that i'm always catching it's always catching my ear and catching my eye as i look at the score and it's like well how did he solve this problem you know and i think yeah, I'm with you on the counterpoint thing. I mean, that's that's so that's so big. Like everything that I, you know, it's, it's a modern context. So like, I might be arranging a hymn or something. So that's something that Bach would do. Okay, cool. So I might be trying to make that sound like how I like it to sound, which sounds more modern than Bach. But that's just because I'm using different harmonic language. But I'm still making sure the voices lead in the proper places. Mm-hmm. Or like, I'm not. It's not like I'm following all the exact Baroque rules because it would sound classical. But I'm trying to make sure the voices are, there needs to be some intention, right? I remember learning this early on in composition lessons. It's like everything, there needs to be intention for each of these lines. Don't let a line go somewhere without intending it to go to that place. Mm-hmm. Then it, Otherwise it sounds sloppy, like what you were saying before, Christian, about lazy songwriting or lazy composing. Like these lines have to go somewhere. So looking at that, looking at all these lines, that's what that's how you get really good repeat value out of a piece of music. You can follow a different line the next time you listen to it. Otherwise, why listen to something twice, you know, if it doesn't have something right. else to, to listen for the second time. And the trick for those of you who write music, the trick to this is, I think, well, it's not a trick because it's, uh, it's not a shortcut, but the answer yeah. to this is you must be able to write two or more independent but simultaneously functioning parts of music and they need to be written with each other in mind that's how bach did it there was a harmonic framework for everything for bach whatever it is for you if it's chords like vertical chords that everything lines up on but the point is is that you should practice the skill of not just writing one thing and then adding things to that thing you should write two independent things that have a symbiotic relationship to each other. Mm. And that gives the music a depth that was common in Bach's time and that Bach excelled at, but in our current time sometimes lacks, or we cover it with just like kind of easily crafted musical texture differences, like adding new instruments or taking out instruments. That stuff is easy. The trick is 
how do the notes all really work together? Yeah. Also, just like a, just like so many, many, many composers have done, I'm a big fan of sneaking Bach into the compositions, like literally with the notes, because uh, we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but, well, maybe we have a little, but Bach himself used his own name as notes and so have many other composers after Bach given honor to Bach by doing that into their own things. You might be thinking to yourself, English-speaking people, H is not a note. The notes go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But in German, the B is what we would call B-flat, and the H is what we would call B-natural. So his name is... A four-note motif. It happens to be a really interesting, chromatic, kind of twisty-turny motif, too. With a nice contour, a little half step down, and then a leap up, and then a half step down. I like to sneak that into my into my music occasionally when there's counterpoint. Almost, this is a little silly again, but almost as if to say like he's the one who taught me how to do this, you know? Yeah, he's paying homage. Yeah. And finally, we have an empty beer glass. An empty beer glass. <laughs> We've got more optimator. <laughs> finally, we have this question by Bruce, this comment slash question. He recently discovered the opening chorus of the cantata Nun kommt der Heiden Highland BWV 62. And he's wondering about all of the hundreds of things that Bach wrote that we never have time to get to because we're so busy unpacking the, quote, upper layers, the better known pieces. And he asks, what hidden gems may lie in those pieces we never get to? Anyway, Bruce, this is, that's very well said. That actually should be the way we say it. <laughs> Can we use his wording? <laughs> I mean, yeah, every, every like, time. Could that be our tagline? Because yeah. that's, that is the, the mission statement of our podcast, really. I think he's absolutely right. There's so many. he's bringing up is by the way a different Nunkomterheiden Highland cantata than our episode 2 cantata which was BWV 61 but I'm kind of terrified to answer Bruce's question literally what hidden gems may lie in those pieces we never get to I think we have to say that that's just what we're trying to do with this podcast every single episode and that's the, the answer to his question is we hope to pick away at that one by one yeah, and sometimes we do pick stuff that's from obscure pieces, and sometimes we pick stuff from the more well-known works, but hopefully try to shed some light on some moments from those works that are not really thought of as being important. Yeah, and I am afraid that the ones that are the popular pieces are more popular episodes. That makes sense. Well, that's fine. But I also think that... I, I also wish that Bruce's philosophy here was ultimately successful which is that we should endeavor to look at those those missing things here and there that we've never heard because yeah. because we know they're going to be good because they're Bach 
So it's great to listen to those. That's that's the principle that this podcast was founded on. Episode ten. I was about to say episode ten. That I was about to say I would, if the if you're listening to this right now and you haven't listened to the entire catalog yet, I would direct you to episode ten, which is a great example of this. A good episode, I think, and it's one where Christian, you lay out the the moment that made you think, let's do a podcast with this point to it. That was right? the moment. That was the moment, and it was a it was a kind of throwaway little recitative movement in the middle of a larger work, the Saint Matthew Passion. But nobody's going to remember that particular one because there's so much other great stuff in that work. But but what a perfect little piece it is. It's like it's almost like. An analogy would be a masterful work of architecture like the Getty or something. You go in there and it leads you through these big sweeping rooms and outdoors and indoors. And this recitative is like a hallway. It just connects two bigger things to each other. But it's because it's the Getty, it's the most immaculately designed, beautiful hallway. It's those things that I want to shed light on. And it's the hidden gems lying in there. That's how we, I mean, that's how we got started. So, well, and thank you to the listeners for being a part of this journey with us and for um, coming along with us, especially on some of the stuff that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have have found this podcast by um, by your friends telling you about it or by it getting recommended to you and, and maybe clicked on some of the, the pieces that you knew a little bit better and then jumped into, took, took the risk and, and dove into something that you didn't know and discovered, like we do, how the genius of Bach shines through in all of this stuff. So thank you for going on that journey with us. Yeah. If you're listening to this and haven't finished the rest of the catalog, we designed this break this way partly so that you could get caught up and you know share with more people. So we're trying to get to a very significant number, but we're not quite going to reach it this next week unless we get a lot of listeners over this break period. Right, Alex? We're trying to get to... 35 downloads <laughs> if we can just get we have one listener who's downloaded the episode of the podcast yeah. every week one listener <laughs> if that person uh, if you're out there if you could just finish the rest of the <laughs> episodes no it's uh, not 35 we it's are 35 billion <laughs> yeah 35 billion so we would just like everyone in the world to listen to it four more times right Everyone, five more times. Just six to be safe. Okay. Well, anyway, anyway, the real number that we're almost at that we're trying to get to is 10,000 downloads of downloads. Yeah. Downloads of an episode, which means that if you, listener, have been faithful and subscribed to the podcast and have had your phone or whatever automatically download every episode since the beginning, then you've gotten us like over 30. So almost maybe closer to 40. So help us get there. <laughs> uh, tell a friend, yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. I know that a lot of you have been doing that, have been sharing the podcast. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think it's, it's, it's been such a, such a really great joy for us to see these numbers grow and for us to realize that people 
are listening and care about this. So we thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, it's great for us. We love doing this. And like we said, we're going to keep going. In January, we're going to start up our season two. We're excited to just just get rolling with that as soon as, as soon as January hits. And yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. Another shout out is our Aunt Julie. She knew we would love, we would both love the Gödel Escher Bach book. And she gave us each a copy, which is great. That thing is going to definitely serve as as podcast material. Yeah. The Crab Cannon episode, episode 35, is one where we first start talking about that. Yep. What a great book that is. Also, we have to give the biggest of shout-outs to the Netherlands Box Society, who allowed yeah. us to use their musical examples this whole year and continue to do so. And we don't have a podcast without them. That's right. Because you can't just use music in a podcast from the internet that you found. You have to have the permission. Plus, there's no one better that I would rather do it anyway. And because they're because of their Olive Bach project. They're going after everything that this yeah. composer ever wrote. That's the thing. I mean, it's it'd be one thing if, if, if our little podcast got the permission of some other little cute ensemble who was doing a pretty nice job of Bach and it's like oh great well it's nice that they're gonna let us use their stuff but no we have the permission of a very very esteemed high quality group like the Netherlands Bach Society is top notch so so that I mean as you know listener as you've followed us through this that's what's that's what's really been the foundation of what we're doing because those the quality of those examples is it's just really it's hard to hard to match with anybody else and also the the reason why why we're doing it anyway is because of their philosophy which is what we share which is that bach should be made available for everyone to see and experience so they do the heavy lifting there by playing the music recording it and then that's that's what we're sort of riding the coattails of, right? Is that we like to expound on that and grow this little listener base and hope to just sort of evangelize Bach to people. It's the it's kind of the least we can do. Yeah. So after this, we're going to hear some bloopers from the entire year, the entire year's worth of bloopers. And we'll release those as a bonus episode. But otherwise, Alex, that's the year. That's the first season of A Moment of Bach, isn't it? Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also, check out our Facebook, Instagram, and our website. Please give us a rate and a review and share your knowledge about this podcast. Like we said before, tell a friend about it. That's the best way that you can help us grow. And I think the second best way would be to leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you got the podcast. iTunes ratings especially will get us just a little higher in the list of recommendations so that people can just find this podcast without ever having heard of it, which would be great for us. Yeah, iTunes ratings is what we really need, I think, at this point. So Alex, the next episode is the first episode of Season 2. That's right. And what are we going to be talking about when that happens? In January of 2022, when we start up season two, we're going to be talking about the Shekhan from Violin Partita Number 2 in D minor, 
BWV 1004. Until next year, enjoy those moments. <laughs>